Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, CID student ambassador Alexandra Gonzalez interviews Ricardo Hausman, director of CID and professor of the practice of economic development at the Harvard Kennedy School. Ricardo discusses how he became CID's director, their current work throughout the world, and what you can expect from future research. Ricardo, thanks for being with us today. It is a privilege to have an opportunity to interview you and share with our audience more about your work and the contributions of the Harvard Center for International Development, or CID. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Let me start by asking about your career and how you became the director of CID. You have held important positions such as the Chief Economist of the Inter-American Development Bank, Minister of Planning of Venezuela, and you have been a professor for many years. What can you tell our audience about your story? People might say that I have changed careers along the path. I really don't think so. I think that I have been sort of playing the same game from different positions. So it's always been the game of economic development. I started in academia, I went to government, went back to academia, went back to government. So I did that academia to government twice while I was in Venezuela after I finished my PhD in the U.S. And then after government, I went and became the chief economist of the Inter-American Development Bank, where I created uh, the research department, which is still there and which is full of fantastic people, and I'm extremely proud of their work. And then at the Inter-American Development Bank in 2000, I got an offer to come to the Kennedy School as a professor because they were creating this MPAID program, the Master in Public Administration slash International Development. So I was hired together with Andres Velasco and Lance Pritchett at the same time in the creation of that program by Danny Roderick. And so we had a fantastic group of people here. Jeff Sachs was here at, at that time. That was the year 2000. Jeff Sachs left, I think, in 2001 or 2002. He was the director of CID. And after that, it was a long period of very weak leadership here at CID. And so CID basically imploded. And I was appointed in October 2005 to lead it. And I must report that CID is not imploding. CID is now paying the salary of some 65 people. That does not include the professors who are hired by, by the schools. And so it's now a thriving center with a lot of activity. So it's been fantastic to witness this growth. Great. And CID has three very unique but complementary research programs. It's Building State Capacity, Evidence for Policy Design, and the Growth Lab. As I understand, you are not only the director of CID, you are also one of the faculty directors at the Growth Lab. Can you tell us more about its work and how it has evolved in the past years? Building State Capability does fantastic work. They have revolutionary ideas on how to improve government capacity and policy implementation. I work with them a lot in many of our country works, and I'll say a little bit more later maybe about that. Evidence for policy design, they do, they try to help institutions improve the design of their policies by testing them and by doing randomized control trials and other forms of learning from experience. So this is not evidence as a way of auditing programs, but as a way of better designing programs. Then finally, there's the growth lab. And in the growth lab, we do two kinds of things. We do sort of like basic research on, on the nature of growth and, and the causes of growth and the mechanisms of growth, where there the subject is growth. And then we do a bunch of applied work, 
where there the subject is either a country or a place. So it's about the country, it's about the place, it's learning from them and deriving policies, designing policies, helping implement policies. So we started engaging first at the country level and so one of our first projects was in El Salvador and that project in El Salvador led us to a diagnostic of El Salvador and then we sort of decided to, that was 2003, Then we decided to reverse engineer what we did in El Salvador and we came up with this methodology called growth diagnostics, which is now being used by many people. You know, it's a standard practice at the World Bank, at Millennium Challenge Corporation, at the Department for International Development at the UK and other institutions at Inter-American Development Bank. So it's now, it's now a standard methodology. We do a lot of that in our work in a country. Then we developed this whole approach to understanding technology and productivity as economic complexity. So we developed the tools of economic complexity. And so in our engagement with countries, we deploy the techniques and the methodologies that we work out in our research. Right now we are engaged in many countries in Sri Lanka. Let me follow this uh, geographically so I don't get confused. It's uh, Sri Lanka. We did some work recently on Indonesia and Vietnam, but I don't count them as full programs. We are fully engaged in Sri Lanka. We are fully engaged in Saudi Arabia, in Jordan, in Albania. And in the case of Mexico, we are engaged in studies at the state level. We did a major study in Chiapas, Now we're engaged in Campeche, Tabasco, and Baja California. We did a study of a city. It was our first growth diagnostic of a city, the city of Hermosillo. And we're engaged in Panama and in Colombia. So that gives us a pretty broad sweep. I'm constantly reviewing new proposals. We might re-engage in South Africa. South Africa is a country that we worked a lot on between 2004 and 2009. And then we hope to re-engage. And, you know, we might get involved in some other countries. But typically, when we get engaged, we apply our techniques, growth diagnostics, economic complexity, and other things. We identify policies. We engage with the building state capability people to figure out how to implement those policies. And, and in the different countries, we are at different stages of work. Yes, and the CID has been recognized for uh, pushing the development agenda forward, not only doing research, but also uh, working closely with uh, government and different actors. What are some of the challenges or binding constraints that you have identified in developing countries, and how do you tackle them? Well, it depends on, on each country. Say, in the case of Albania, when we got started, we thought that the main problem was a macro problem that needed a macro solution. So we started in 2013, and we tackled the macro imbalances very quickly, but we knew that those macro imbalances, which were of a fiscal nature, would require a fiscal adjustment. And the fiscal adjustment was not going to be good for growth. So in order to accelerate growth, we had to work on increasing exports and investment for exports. So we did sort of like a growth diagnostic of why were exports and investment for exports not higher. And we started to work on all fields, agriculture, manufacturing, tourism, electricity, oil. And I'm happy to report that the macro problem was dealt with. Interest rates, which were very high, came down dramatically. There are record lows. And then 
And in spite of the fiscal adjustment, growth accelerated. And the economy is growing now close to 4%, in spite of the fact that population growth in Albania is either zero or slightly negative. So, so these are per capita growth rates of 4%, which are not bad. So there the diagnostic changed, right? But in Saudi Arabia, we got involved when the country was facing a collapse in the price of oil and they needed to do a fiscal adjustment that they also needed to grow. So how do you grow while you have to do a fiscal adjustment? And in the case of Sri Lanka, the problem is that export dynamism is very low. So whenever the external constraint gets lifted for one reason or another, the economy can grow a lot, but exports fall behind and eventually cause a current account deficit and constraint growth. So we're working with them on how to increase exports But in order to increase exports, they have to change what they produce. They have to move into new things because the things that they're currently doing face very, very stiff competition from countries that are poorer than them. So they have to move up to other areas that can pay higher wages. And so that's the binding constraint that we find there. Interestingly, in that binding constraint, one of the reasons why they haven't diversified, we think, is because they have a very very tough, restrictive immigration policy. A lot of the diversification comes from immigrants because if you start doing things that you don't know how to do because somebody who knows how to do it moves in. Silicon Valley, something like 54% of the entrepreneurs are foreign-born. But foreign-born means born outside of the U.S. Because if you were to count born outside of California... Well, that would be, you know, like 90%, right? But California is a country of 40 million people. If it were a country, it would have 40 million people. So this indicates how innovation is so related to diversity of people, talents, perspectives, and so on. We see it at CID. We have, uh, I don't know, out of the 65 people here, we probably have 20 nationalities or more. So countries, without noticing, they fall into this problem of restricting immigration in a way that hurts their absorption of technology and diversification opportunities very significantly. So immigration is a main contributor to development, and this is related to the sense of us, which is the topic of the Global Empowerment Meeting here at Harvard. For our audience, so the Global Empowerment Meeting is uh, the main annual event of CID, where leaders and academia and also private and public sector come together to discuss relevant topics related to inclusive and sustainable growth. Ricardo, can you explain the relevance of sense of us for development? Well, you know, humans are deeply cooperative species. We are the most cooperative mammal on Earth. And cooperation means that we cooperate with whom? We cooperate with us, that is, with a group that you cooperate with. At what scale? At every scale, you know. You, we cooperate within the family. We cooperate here at CID. I cooperate more broadly with the Kennedy School or with Harvard University. We cooperate at the level of the nation, Right? So cooperation is something that occurs at all scales. And at every scale, there is a sense of identification with that us that you are cooperating with. Right? So, so us, the Hausmann family, or us, the CID family. So there's an us that gets built in our mind. And, you know, if we don't cooperate when we're supposed to, we feel guilty. And when other people find out that we didn't cooperate, we feel ashamed. And, And when we find out that other people that were supposed to cooperate 
didn't cooperate, we feel angry and outraged, right? And so cooperation is stained by moral sentiments, by feelings. So we're trying to study and uncover those dimensions. The challenge with development is that development is really about the accumulation of know-how, the accumulation of technologies. Technologies is tools, codes, and know-how. Tools and codes are things that are easy to move around, tools, you know, you can ship them around, and, and codes, recipes, how to do manuals, and so on, can be shared easily in books or on the internet. But know-how resides only in brains. And modern technologies differ from more traditional technologies in that there's so much of it that you have to put different bits in different brains. So you need to produce by bringing many people together. So you have, you know, in a typical modern firm, you have accountants, you have people who know about procurement, about human resource management, about production, about sales, about marketing, about contracts, about finance, about accounting, and so on and so forth. Technology requires much broader networks of people that have to come together and cooperate. And that is also happens at the level of the nation. Nations have become bigger. In our evolutionary past, we used to live in, in small bands, then larger tribes, but we never in our evolutionary history worked at the scale that we're working now, especially in the construction of states. So states are relatively big compared to the units that we used to cooperate with or the social lives that we used to have. And that history of increase in the radius of cooperation is expressed in language diversity today. If you look at a country like Cameroon, well, it's a country that today, it has a population of something like 30 million people, 25 million people. It has 230 languages. A country like Indonesia has 700 languages. A country like India has over 1,600 languages. The African continent has 54 states, but has 2,552 languages. So the number of languages reflects the fact that in our evolutionary past, we were talking to each other in small groups and we weren't talking across groups. So we didn't have to develop a common language to communicate. Now, we are creating states that hold a much, much bigger diversity. And many of these states have the trouble of defining what does it mean to be us. What does it mean to be us? Who is the state for? Who should be the subject of concern for the state? Who gets to be part of us? Who can migrate here? Who's allowed to live among us? So these are topics that have become salient not only in developing countries, but in developed countries. The debate in the U.S. right now is, you know, African-Americans, Latinos, Muslims, are they really us? Should we be treated as us? Uh, do they belong here? Should we put walls? Should we restrict Muslims from coming into the country? They're not us. They might hate us or they might rape us, right? So a lot of these issues have to do with mental constructions and feelings about us. That's even in the U.S. right now and in rich countries, the alternatives for Germany, the AFD party in Germany, it's all about migration. It's, you know, this country is for us, it's not for them. And so all this issue 
has become central even in developed countries. In developing countries, it's very different. Countries have to create a sense of us out of an enormous internal heterogeneity. For example, in India, you have these 1,600 languages. You have castes. You have many religions. You have you know, the Hindus, the Jains, the Sikhs, the Muslims. You have Christians. You have Buddhists. So there's an enormous heterogeneity, and you have to develop on top of that an Indian identity. So it's very easy for politics to exploit these divisions, right? And those are part of what Indian politics is about. I like this phrase that says that in India, you don't cast your vote, you vote your caste. So people align themselves not on left, right angles or other things. They align themselves a little bit on conflicts around the sense of us. It's something that I'm very excited about this idea, in part because I hadn't thought about these issues before, and I cannot stop thinking about them now. Whenever we engage in Sri Lanka, it's a major issue. In Saudi Arabia, it's a major issue. There's no path to permanent residence. There's no path to citizenship in Saudi Arabia. And why is that? Well, because, you know, they're not us, right? This country is for us. So now I see it everywhere. And so I was very excited to see anthropologists, historians, psychologists, sociologists, economists coming together from their very different perspectives to discuss that sense of us. And I hope that the videos will be put up soon. The audience might get to see them. Yes, the audience can actually look at the videos and all the material of the gem on the website. And so the CID has been working on different topics. It has developed relevant tools. How do you see the future of the CID? I can anticipate the nearby future, but you never know where research is going to lead you. I think that on the growth lab angle, we have developed this theory of how technology is absorbed, how technology moves, and this idea so that it's tools, codes, and know-how, and know-how implies these networks of people that have to be brought together. So we're currently doing research on trying to understand how know-how is split between different people and how it's brought back together. So we're looking within a person, what are his skill sets, what are the tasks they perform, and then how are teams put together. And we have new, very exciting research on the importance of the complementarity of teams, of the importance of creating teams where people know different things so that the team knows more than the individuals. And we have some very exciting research coming from that angle. And that research explains, for example, why large firms are typically more productive than small firms. And it has to do with the fact that in large firms, you can have bigger, more complementary teams, teams that specialize in different things so that the whole knows more than the parts. And the same thing about cities. Large cities can have more complementarity than smaller cities. So by measuring that complementarity, we explain something that in the literature is called the urban puzzle. Why are bigger cities more productive? So we now think that that will allow us to understand how cities can diversify, what kind of skills they need to attract into the region if they're missing them, and you know what might happen now with the future of work and so on. So we will have a set of new exciting research coming down the pipe. Great. Thank you, Ricardo, for this wonderful podcast session. What would be your final message for our audience? Follow us. I think there's a lot of stuff that we're working on. We have a very active website and just a Google for the Center for International Development at Harvard and you'll get to us and just let's keep the conversation. Thank you so much.
If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.